0: You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Hello and welcome to In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at Marvel Comics series The Nom. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this time around we're taking a look at issue number 22 of the series, which covers November 1967, which is where a song comes from. Incense and Peppermints by Strawberry Alarm Clock was number one the week of November 25th, 1967, Thanksgiving Weekend. 1967, and since this issue is titled Thanks for Thanksgiving, I thought that was more than appropriate. Plus, the song is one of those iconic psychedelic one-hit wonders, the type we're used to seeing in flashbacks to the 1960s, especially on shows like The Simpsons. It was only number one in on the charts for a week before it started its decline, and the band never really capitalized on this success. However, it should be noted that band member Ed King would go on to be part of Leonard Skynyrd. Our issue, which takes place, as I said, in November 1967, was cover dated September 1988 and came out on May 31st, 1988. It is a cover by Bob Camp that shows four Viet Cong soldiers in an underground tunnel, one of whom is injured and being helped by another. And they're all looking at the ceiling, above which are three American soldiers. Being that the main focus of this issue will be these VC, it's appropriate, and much like many of the other covers in the series so far, shows us that what we'll be seeing inside. And inside is, like I said, Thanks for Thanksgiving, which was written by Doug Murray, penciled by Wayne Van Sant, inked by Jeff Sherwood. Phil Felix was your letter and, co- letter and colorists, Don Daly was the editor, Larry Hama, consulting editor, Pat Redding, managing editor, and Tom DeFalco, editor-in-chief. November 1967. The Viet Cong move to their staging area for the planned Tet invasion. We see a convoy moving on a road through a jungle, and then we hear, There! There they are! An American helicopter has spotted the caravan and shines its spotlight on them. The chopper pilot says they need to radio in the position right away, and the VC unveil an anti-aircraft gun and start firing. The chopper is shot down, but the VC soldiers say that it's obvious that the Americans had time to get communications out, so they have to evacuate as soon as possible. One of them, a doctor, notes that the facility they're evacuating includes a hospital, and it's not possible to move the patients quickly because these people will die. They take the patients back into the hospital and undercover. Meanwhile, the base tries to reach the chopper on the radio, and when they don't get an answer, they order artillery fire. The artillery pounds away, and the people in the underground VC hospital notice it. They're stuck there, saying that it's obvious that in the morning that Americans will send troops, and therefore they can do nothing but wait. Unfortunately, they're running low on supplies. A moment later, a blast dislodges a support beam, and one of the VC, Quang, is injured by its fall. The doctor does his best to wrap Quang's wounds, but he doesn't have enough supplies. Quang tells him that no, he can't risk going outside of the tunnels because he shouldn't endanger their comrades. The shelling stops and the doctor decides to take a chance and head outside for a supply run. As he peeks out of the tunnel's hidden entrance, three American choppers show up. They find the down chopper, and we hear the pilot say that they'll send troops out in the morning. The doctor returns to the hospital and says the Americans will back in the morning. Quang says that yes, they'll be back, but when the general's plan works, they'll go away forever. The doctor hopes he's right and does his best to stop the bleeding. Early the next morning, the 23rd hats out for another search and destroy. They board choppers, and Daniels was around with some more, well, because that's what he does, much to the dismay of his fellow troops. They fly over the wrecked chopper and then land, while elsewhere, the doctor and one of his nurses listens to the start of their activity, hoping that they won't get noticed. Phillips gathers the men around and tells them to spread out. Daniels almost immediately starts complaining about having to hump it in the boonies on Thanksgiving, and Phillips retorts, well... What would you do if you couldn't complain and clown around? Be miserable like the rest of you, I guess, Daniel replies. Still, I hate to miss that good chow. One of the newer recruits sees something sticking out of the ground and grabs it. Clark, seeing what he's doing, dives on the kid and tells him he should never touch anything without asking first, especially since there are booby traps like that all over the place. Daniels tells the kid that they all screw up and it's okay, to which Clark replies that sometimes screw-ups can kill you. Daniels makes a crack that Clark's was just having a rough time because his girlfriend left him, but backs down with the ribbing when Clark gives him a look of death. They survey the area and find the tracks the VC were making the night before, which confirms the chopper's report of a caravan moving through the jungle. They also find the anti-aircraft guns and wonder why it was left behind. Pig says they probably left in a hurry, and while we see the VC nurse listening in from below the ground. The twenty third calls for a pickup and gets denied. Phillips says they have to follow the tracks south before they go in, but they are getting Thanksgiving dinner sent in. The food arrives and the guys enjoy it, with Daniels on guard duty lamenting that he's got guard duty and he's missing out on hot chow. Phillips, however, makes takes a moment to relieve him so he can eat and he delightfully goes off with his food. Sometime later the guys pack up because they need to head out. They decide to leave the food behind, especially since they don't want to carry all that while trying to track VC movements. After they leave, the doctor gets to the surface and comes across the food they left behind. He brings it underground and tells Quang he needs to eat. Quang replies with, You see, doctor, you see. It is as I said. The Americans have much, so much, and it just slips through their fingers. So it will be with our country and all their might. It will slip through their fingers. Quang then passes away, and as the doctor places a sheet over his head and says, I hope you're right, my friend. I just hope you're right. Back in issue 7, we got a look at the motivation of the enemy. Uh, Although Duong, who was the Vietnamese soldier that narrated his own backstory, did actually become a, a Carson scout and sided with the Americans, we got a good idea that the Vietnamese who were fighting the war were doing it partially with a sense of idealism and partially or even more so with a sense of their own survival or for the survival of their homeland. And I thought that Murray pulled it off as objectively as he could. The VCR and horrendous as say the Nazis, so demonizing them wouldn't exactly show the full picture. And I'm not saying we have to be made to side with those who fought against us, but the Vietnam War was incredibly complicated and in that heroes and villains weren't always 100% clear, especially as we'll see in future issues with regard to the South Vietnamese government, whom we were supporting. So what do we have here? Well, we have a closer look at the point of view of of the enemy once again, this time through the point of view of those who were working in a field hospital. None of them really seem to have identities beyond the doctor, who is much like an American doctor seems more, and seems more concerned with his patient's well-being than the ideals for which they are all fighting. And Quang, who is definitely playing the part of Angry Young Man, the staunch idealist, the stereotypical driven soldier who absolutely hates his enemy and everything they stand for. He's a revolutionary after all. I get the feeling that the doctor, while he does obviously share some the same set of ideals, is, isn't as blinded by his beliefs in a way. His motivation, at least from the 30 pages of the story that we have here, is the survival and protection of the people who were patients at the hospital. So it's a bit sympathetic toward the enemy, but at the same time, I don't think Murray's asking us to pick a side. As for the actual story, well, to peel back the curtain a little on how I put this podcast together, um, I read every issue twice. Uh, I read it straight through once, and then when I'm done writing, when I'm writing the synopsis, I find myself reading again, and I've been hot and cold in the 23rd being in this story. During one reading, I felt that having them be in the group that is sent to evaluate the helicopter crash and then track the VC was a little forced. Like, we've got to shoehorn this group in there, so let's make sure that they're the ones to carry out the mission. But upon another reading, as force as it may have seemed, it worked, because they would be the team to carry out such a mission, and furthermore, when we cut back and forth between the scenes in the hospital and the scenes of that meeting Thanksgiving dinner, we get a nice contrast between the two groups. I don't fault Daniels and the rest of the 23rd for wanting Thanksgiving dinner the way they do, although I do see what Quang means, even if I think he's a little too idealistic here. He's the guy who would be willing to martyr himself rather than do the practical thing. The angry young man who's just irritating as hell. He's fair and he's true and he's boring as hell and will go to the grave as an angry old man. Speaking of irritating as hell, Daniels? The goofing off to get attention to the point where Clark just wants to deck him for making crack about Jane? Oh, man, it is irritating. And I don't want any characters to die, but let's just say I want something bad to happen to Daniels so they'll stop acting like such a moron all the time. And if something does, I honestly don't know, so we'll have to find out. Van Zant and I would continue to be solid, and since they'll be on the book for a while, I'm glad they found that I'm glad that they continue to hit their stride. They give the Viet Cong enough characters so they seem like actual people and not enemy stereotypes, and what movement there is in the book continues to be fluid and dynamic. And that's it for issue twenty-two. When I get back, I'll talk historical context, letters, and ads. This book is to be neither an accusation nor a confession, and least of all, an adventure. For death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will try simply to tell of a generation of men, who even though they may have escaped shells, were destroyed by the war. This July 28th, In-Country. A podcast covering Marvel Comics The Nom presents All Quiet on the Western Front. I'm Tom Panneries, and to commemorate the centennial of the First World War, I will be dedicating a special episode to Eric Maria Remarque's all time classic war novel. Along with a look at the novel, I will discuss two film adaptations and then take a quick glance at poetry and songs of the war to end all wars. That's this July 28th at incountry.potomatic.com. So 1967, November of 1967, uh, November 2nd, 1967, President Lyndon Johnson met with the nation's most prestigious leaders, nicknamed, nicknamed the Wise Men, asking them to suggest ways to unite American people behind the war effort. The advice he got was to give American people more optimistic reports on the war. On November 3rd, the Battle of Dacto begins, which is a victory for the U.S. Army even if it was a narrow one. According to the History Place, one of my sources for the section of the podcast, the battle took place in the mountainous terrain along the border of Cambodia and Laos as the United States 4th Infantry Division heads off a planned NVA attack against the Special Force Camp located there. During the fighting, the 4th Battalion, 503rd Airborne Infantry earns a Presidential Unit Citation for Bravery. Massive airstrikes, combined with U.S. and South Vietnamese ground attacks, result in an NVA withdrawal into Laos and Cambodia. NVA losses are put at about 1,644. U.S. troops suffered 289 killed. And quote, along with the gallantry and tenacity of our soldiers, our tremendously successful air logistic operation was key to the victory. Uh, And that's from General Westmoreland. This ended the last week of November. Johnson makes another appeal to North Vietnam for peace on November 11th, but it's quickly rejected by Hanoi. And six days later, he goes on television telling the American public that they are inflicting greater losses than we are taking and we are making progress. General Westmoreland tells Time magazine that he hopes the North will bring something because they're looking for a fight. Of course, the Tet Offensive 68 is only a couple months away, even though he doesn't know it at the time. And I'll talk more about Tet in a couple of episodes when we hit uh, 24 and 25. On November 29th, Defense Secretary Robert McNamara resigns, and he's one of the latest of Johnson's top war advisors to resign, as behind closed doors he expressed major concerns over the direction the president was taking the war. McNamara, by the way, is the focus of an Academy Award-winning documentary called The Fog of War, which was released in 2003 and directed by Earl Morris. I've not seen the entire film, although I've heard quite a bit about it, and I was thinking I might do a documentaries episode as one of the special episodes of the podcast somewhere down the line, and if I do this, will definitely be on the list. Johnson's political prospects dim a little bit more the very next day, November 30th, when Eugene McCarthy, a staunch anti-war Democrat, announces his candidacy for the president intending to challenge Johnson, who is the incumbent in the primary. And without giving too much away, the 1968 election will be an incredibly contentious one, something that you can definitely see starting right here. Incoming for this issue, we have John Cabral of Provincetown, Massachusetts, writing about uh, the role black men played in the war. He says, uh, Not coincidentally, as comics and the cinema increasingly use the Vietnam War as a backdrop for storytelling. We also notice an increase in the number of black men in comics and on film. Always notorious for having ignored black characters, and it's about time. It took the nom to introduce a comic book character like Rob Little, a true heroic and inspiring black man, and needless to say, my favorite nom character. I only hope that this trend inspires the creation of black characters in other genres, particularly a positive black superhero 2 or 3. I'd also like to comment on the ongoing debate concerning the treatment of nom vets when they return home. Doug, I am in complete agreement with you and understand the anger you must feel when you read a letter such as Mr. Carter's Nom number 18. At the same time, however, that letter did raise a valid point. There were two sides. The people at home didn't ignore or reject returning vets out of maliciousness, but rather out of confusion. It became impossible for Zephilians to disassociate the soldier from the horrific events unfolding on their televisions and in the newspaper. It is, after all, referred to as the Living Room War, the first of its kind. The sad and tragic result of this was and is the shunning of the Vietnam veteran. That does not excuse it or make it right, but it does help to explain it. Please find some way to tell the story of the changing infusion taking place in the States during this time, perhaps, in a NAM annual. If you don't, I fear you'll be doing a great disservice on an otherwise fine book. What's funny is that the NAM actually didn't have any annuals. Uh, and I think he's got a point. This would have been a real that would have been a really good story for an annual. I know that we do get some um, here and there uh, stories like that. Way, way down the line, there's a five-parter, or five, four or 5 part called The Death of Joe Hallen, which is which is done very, very well. Sergeant Paul Schoenberger writes in. He says, I finished reading number 18, specifically the letter column. He's a soldier in the U.S. Army. He's a little biased. He says, your reply to Mr. Ms. Blake and Mr. Carter's letters were beautiful. I was lucky to miss that crazy Asian war, Mr. Murray, but I have a lot of respect for those that fought and died over there. And yet, it amazes me that people choose to blame the veterans for a mixed-up foreign policy. When my uncle returned from the Second World War for six months, he couldn't go into a bar and pay for a drink. It was always on the house, and nothing is too good for our veterans, the owners would say. If he didn't get a ticker tape parade, at least no one called him a baby burner killer fascist or accused him of being a dope smoker or a rapist. That's the only real tragedy of the NOM war. No one, absolutely no one, went up to a NOM vet and said, you did a good job. We know the rules were fixed, the politicians were playing games, and there was no clear aim in sight, but at least you and your fellow servicemen tried to carry out your assigned goal, even if the president and Congress didn't have any idea what the goal was. Maybe it was like Gene Hackman said in the movie Uncommon Valor. Because we lost the war, it became similar to a business that went bankrupt. We failed to turn a profit, so everyone just wants to forget about it, treat it like it didn't exist. So please don't feel that the Carters and Blakes of the world represent everyone, because that is simply not true. There are a lot of us, both military and civilian, who appreciate the job that the non-vets and other American vets did in the service of their country. Hmm. The next letter is from John De La Cruz of uh, London, England. He is also commenting on uh, issue 15 and the response from issue 15. Uh, and this is like, this was the issue, by the way, that I, uh, a little while ago, covered in conjunction with Professor Allen over in the Quarterbin podcast. And I, I Professor Allen, I actually do hope you've been listening for the last few issues because I've, I've really enjoyed going through these letter columns, all of this response to that issue, because it just ignited such controversy among the readership and, and that's one of the reasons I love having these issues in my hand and don't have like you know I don't have CBRs or anything of them John says he does he's actually he's talking about the uh, the new format and he says it looks good but it effectively doubled the price if you wait for the newsstands here maybe a double sized issue could have erased the transition still I'll continue buying okay he says that Nam 15 seemed to provoke a lot of response and um, I don't think anybody mentioned both the reasons for the shoddy treatment of returning veterans sure the anti-war protesters were Hardly quite likely to welcome those boys, but I think those Americans who were pro war also ignored the homecoming troops if for a much different reason, America wasn't winning, even those who supported the war weren't going to pretend that the men deserved a glorious homecoming the p b i poor bloody infantry as it used to be known in England, couldn't win. In Vietnam, they had to face a rarely seen adversary in conditions never before experienced by a highly mechanized Western force, with all the dangers exhibited in your comic. On the return to the big PX, they found hostility from opponents of the war and indifference from supporters. It's only now that Vietnam vets are beginning to receive the understanding they deserve. Some people complain that all the attention is on the American troops' suffering. Well, I'd agree, but I don't think we can expect people who fought the NVA to produce that kind of work. The American soldier remains the figure who probably shouldn't have been there, and more than likely didn't want to be there. In number 18, the squad certainly has established its character. I hope they can save Rob's leg, and I'm glad if they fragged Alarnick. Doug replies, We got a bunch of other letters concerning numbers 18's letter page. Most were in support, though they were those who are surely are sure that anarchy is the way to go. I'm not going to argue it further now. I'll just thank you all for your support and interest, and ask you to think about all of it in case it happens again in the future. There's a question that somebody writes in concerning the shotgun against the uh, Geneva Convention. And the uh, Roy Roberts says that they used to issue shotguns very often. Uh, the favorite model is the pump-action riot gun with a double, double back, buckshot. Uh, someone needs to research a little more. Doug says the Geneva convention does ban the use of shotguns in the field. Shotguns an issue in Vietnam were used for guarding fixed installations and in prisoners, something the convention did allow. Thanks for the interest. Andrew Strickland of Bakersfield, California wants to know if the Marine F-4s on a Navy aircraft carrier were correct. Uh, he's, he's said there's, he's always been told that Marine fighters have land bases. They're not on aircraft carriers. Only the Navy has fighter planes on a carrier. and, and then, uh, Doug says, "Yep, Marine fighters have flown off Navy fighter Navy uh, ships since World War II, and they still do." And Matt Urban writes in that his friend now was an F four pilot in in Vietnam. He was shot down. He now actually has a cerebral palsy as a result of his in, in, injuries. Uh, Matt buys him a uh, his neighbor uh, a copy of the NAM and he loved Nineteen because of the story of a pilot being shot down. And, and what happened to him, and he wanted to express the deep gratitude and hearty, hearty thank you for bringing joy back to a Vietnam vet. Now wheelchair-bound, and he able to fend for himself. Nom notes. Artie, artillery, the bringers of thunder, and the nom. Bought the farm, got killed, buying that 6x6 plot we all end up in. Bring some smoke, heat it up, make it unhealthy to be around, or shoot it all up. Charlie, of course, Victor Charlie, the enemy. Fire for effect. Continue firing. Pour it until it does some good. Hat out. Put on your hat or helmet and move on out. Get moving. In the LBJ, the long bin jail. Not a good place to be. Usually happen if someone brought smoke on you. Clicks. Kilometers. Loach. A reconnaissance helicopter. Smaller and more maneuverable than the familiar Huey. Most Koshi is right away. Staging areas or safe areas where the troops are brought together, trained, and prepared for a major mission. And Tet is the most important holiday of the Vietnamese year, the equivalent of New Year's. Adds this issue, mail-order G.I. Joe figures uh, and and vehicles, you could order the LCV Recon Sled, which I have always wanted but never had, Uh, the Hiss Tank, which I actually did have, Bazooka, and these figures, Bazooka, Major Blood, and The Fridge. Oh that's right. William the Refrigerator Perry had a G.I. Joe action figure, and his weapon was a big football attached to a chain. Aw yeah. He getting mad. he's getting mean he's breaking the line for the G.I. Joe team! That's right, it's William the Refrigerator Perry. The fridge is on GI Joe! And you can get a free fridge. His- Here's out. Select five bridge certificates or call the number on the certificate and the bridge will tell you how to get in on the action with only four certificates. There's a $1 handling charge. See details on specially marked G.I. Joe packages. Watch out, Cobra. Freedom's coming through. Go, Joe! I always used to love, um when you got the vehicles from G.I. Joe, I used to love the mail-away stuff because you could buy stuff that had been, like, from previous series that was, I guess, overstock or whatever. That's how I got the water moccasin and the His Tank and... um the, the Night Landing Graph. I um, Pop Culture Affidavit, which is one of my other podcasts, I did a show, it was episode five? I think it's episode five of Pop Culture Affidavit, which is my look at my favorite G.I. Joe toys of all time. It was from December of 2012. Uh, and the Night Landing Graph was one of them. I don't know why, I just really, really liked it. But um, yeah, this is around the time G.I. Joe was still going strong. It was starting to fade in my memory from what I remember. Um 'Cause this is what I would have been in the third gr- I would have been in the fifth grade. So this is when I was kinda phasing out of a lot of different toys and stuff and focusing more on stuff like baseball. We have a uh, candelicious soft juicy chewy candies. We have which is like this big sna- snake who swallowed one and now you see the shape of the candelicious in him. We have gun smoke again. Uh, it's high noon, you're alone, you're quicker, you're dead from Capcom. Did this use the zapper? I don't think so. It would have been pretty cool. Uh, ooh, American Comics. We have an American comic ad which is showing us what are the hot comics. Uh, Evolutionary War, uh, that's that's starting up. Adventures, again, this is a hot fantasy adventure comic. Batman, um, already we've got Batman, Son of the Demon, The Cult, uh 404 to 407 which is year one we have dark knight um the dark knight paperback the killing joke batman the killing joke batgirl mutilated by the joker yeah i'm not kidding it's says Batgirl mutilated by the joker first print seven dollars like yeah let me buy that issue where batgirl gets mutilated <sighs> so hot it's burned the flesh from your hands that smells really gross I've always been on the fence of what they did to Barbara Gordon because I loved Oracle. I think John Ostrander and then moving on like other writers saved her. I always hated that part of the killing joke because I just thought it was so gratuitous. But I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of the killing joke anyway. That's beside the point. G.I. Joe's still hanging on there. Um, we have Action Force, The Adventures of G.I. Joe in England. Apparently, Alpha number one's going for $3 and is blisteringly hot. I'm not kidding. Deluxe formats, you have a few trades, that some of which I think I actually have these actual trades. And then on the side, if you turn it on its side, you have hot picks. Any adventurers, Batman the Killing Joke, and the Cult, Death, Death Hawk 1. <laughs> Death Hawk 1, Evolutionary Wars, as opposed to the Evolutionary War. Hulk number 33344, Spider-Man, any turtles? My son loves turtles. Oh, Captain O and his O-face. And prizes are cash. The same crap. Sell 18 items, you can get a Tasco microscope allowed. Ooh, Wheel of Fortune game. I think I had that Wheel of Fortune game. Mile High Comics is advertising that they have 4 million comics. I usually used to buy from Mile High all the time. Um, They actually have two pages of ads and uh, an advertisement for their nice subscription. The new issue, Comics Express, I think that stands for. Bullpen bulletins this time around. New editorial people, convention, things. The Hype Line has the Evolutionary War, which is um, X Factor Annual 3. Punisher Annual 1, Super Silver Surfer Annual 1, and then uh, some of the, the titles are going bi-weekly for the summer, uh, Amazing Spider-Man, The Uncanny X-Men, G.I. Joe, and then they're going to start up Marvel Comics Presents, which will um, feature the most popular characters in the Marvel Universe, and I believe Wolverine, yeah, Wolverine was the um, uh, kind of lead on that, and I think that anthology actually lasted for quite a long time. We have Sales Leadership Club for Prizes or Cash. It's kind of interesting how long this Prizes or Cash sales club stuff ran. Um, this and the Olympic Captain O's one. Uh, ooh, an 88-piece art center for 16 items. The Kid Quarter cassette tape deck recorder. Um, God, some of this stuff is so 80s. Computer Logic Lab. Snownut donut racing thing. Solar desk calculator. I remember back when like that cost them. Like, Ooh, a calculator watch. I don't want a calculator watch. Subscription ad has uh that Wolverine with the Swiss Army knife claws thing. The inside back cover is uh, Top Secret SI World and complete with Lotus, latest lasers, and leers. So it's basically add-ons for the Top Secret SI game, which was the beat bonded your own game. And then on the back um, yeah, it was kind of a really cool ad. It's Gear Up. It's for Metal Gear, the video game from Ultra. I want to say I, I never owned this game. I want to say I did play it once because maybe I rented it or something. I used to rent games all the time from the video store, and that's how I got most of my games. But it, the, the ad itself is like all of the different weapons that you could gear you can pick up for f- in Metal Gear, and it tells you like what it does. Um, like Transceiver, this is your most important. Most valuable piece of equipment with you. you'll be able to receive vital information from headquarters, telling you where to find essential weapons and supplies. So it's kind of cool, like you know, um, it's all the stuff. And 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 the the guy on the um, box for Metal Gear actually kind of looked like a Michael Biehn, who at the time would have been recognizable to kids if they'd seen Aliens or The Terminator. And uh, the game, the game looks like it was a nice kind of. Comp- um, there's a little bit of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in there. There's a little bit of, of Contra in there. Um, I don't know. It's one of those where I'd like to, to, to take a look at it and see, uh, see what it was really like. But that is it for now. Uh, next time around, I've got the nom number 23, which is a Christmas episode. This time around, this Christmas episode will not take place or not be airing in December. So just pretend it's Christmas for a little bit. Uh, Until then, thanks for listening. You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics' The Nom. The nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel comics, and as this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes, and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Affidavit, which you can find at PopCultureAffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent to PopCultureAffidavit at gmail.com, and may likely be read on the air as I occasionally do email-centric episodes or segments. Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of the Nam.